I was here, I was reflecting on when I was with you guys last, and to my estimation, that would have been about three years ago. Uh, and a lot's changed in my life, and a lot's changed in the life of Grace Fellowship in the past three years. Uh, when I was with you last, we were in a building that I now believe is a storage facility, correct? Um, so yeah, in the last three years, uh, the Lord has allowed me to get married. You'll see my beautiful wife running around somewhere with our crazy kid, uh, Everett. And uh, also in the last three years, as Andy mentioned, I transitioned out of vocational ministry and I transitioned into, uh, I guess sometimes we say what is more secular work. Uh, and so I started a cleaning company. Um, I would love to share a little bit about that. While I'm doing that, um, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. Um, the number one question I get asked is, why in the world would you start a cleaning company? So perhaps I should answer that question for you really quick. Um, I, growing up, was very passionate in high school about business, but I was also very passionate about ministry, and uh, these two things always felt in, cl- uh, in conflict for me. Um, I had a new business idea every Literally every week I had a new business idea. Uh, That's been true through high school up until even today. Uh, My friends will tell you that I always have something new that I'm thinking about. Um, But what was also true is I loved Jesus, and I wanted to make disciples. And so uh, I was working at Refuge at the time. I started hanging out with some other men from another church here in the city, and they had a vision to create a for-profit entity where they would buy apartments, refugees would move in, uh, but also believers would move in to be the neighbors of these refugees. And uh, because I knew so much about the refugee world at the time, and I knew where refugees lived in the city, I started to drive them around and show them different places that they could potentially buy apartments. And in the midst of that, um, the Lord revealed to me, hey, you could do a for-profit entity. Uh, it could honor me. It could glorify me. And through it, you could make disciples. And so... Um, as they started their business, they had houses and apartments that need cleaned, and so um, clean care began out of that. Uh, over the last three years, the Lord has allowed us to grow. We currently clean about 12 churches in the city. We clean uh, one or two private schools, uh, and then we have several smaller offices that we clean. And And so I'd ask you, if you think about it, even this week, to pray for us um, Uh, I want to make money, but if you could see my heart, I think what you would see is that the desire for growth is that every time I get a new church or office or school to clean, that's a new job that I get to create. And uh, it's been a blessing over the last few years to be able to create jobs for people. We currently have 15 to 18 employees, um, anywhere from part-time to full-time and uh, it's just been amazing. The Lord has a, a sweet mom on our team who grew up in the midst of a lot of money. She grew up in a wealthy family, um, had a really good life from how things appeared. Um, Yeah, and long story short, she got addicted to alcohol and then went through rehab. And then shortly after that time, she came to work for us. She's now in management at our company. She's being a really faithful mom to her youngest daughter, um, a faithful wife to her husband. And so those are, those are the types of things that we're getting to experience through clean care. Um, and I think that's why Pastor Andy has asked me to come today to speak about vocation and work. So with that, let's talk about vocation and work. So the sermon title today is Workers That Are Different, Workers That Are Righteous, and we're going to work together to define what that means and what that looks like. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if you have lost, if but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we come to you. Uh, Lord, I want to ask for your mercy and your grace. Lord, you know that uh, I do not have the gift of public speaking. Uh, Lord, you know that uh, I am weak. But Father, we believe that even just the reading of your word carries with it power. And so, Lord, in the next few moments as we unpack that pa- this passage of, of Scripture together and specifically as we look at it and how it relates to our work life, uh, we ask that you would help us to all be more faithful uh, in our various vocations, Lord. Whether we are a stay-at-home mom, whether we manage many people, uh, or whether we just have a part-time job that we will not have forever and we'll, we'll move on to something else soon. Lord, whatever work we're doing, uh, help us to be faithful and, and use your word to teach us how to do that. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and everybody said amen. So, um, so that's the task. We're going to define what faithfulness looks like in vocation. But before we do that, I'd like to, to share with you about an experience that I had. So uh, let me just say this, unfamiliar darkness brings about desperation, and this became really apparent to me a few years ago. Um, How many people in here have heard of Lights Under Louisville? Lights Under Louisville. So uh, it's cool, right? You get to pay $27 per car, um, you get to break the bank, and you get to drive through these caverns that exist here in the city near the zoo. If you live near the zoo, it's actually probably a nightmare to have lights under Louisville because of the amount of traffic that it draws in. See some heads bobbing there. Um, but lights under Louisville is a really cool thing. You get to drive through these caverns. Uh, there's actually a lot of different things that these caverns exist for. So you can drive through them during Christmas time to see the lights, but also you can zip line in the caverns. You can ride bicycles. Uh, and there's these there's various uh, things there. In fact, Southern Seminary, from, from what I've heard, actually stores thousands of their library books down there because they don't have enough space in their library. So these caverns are, uh, play home to more than just lights. They have a lot of, the caverns have a lot of other functions. Um, one summer in college, I needed to make some extra money. What college student doesn't need to make extra money, right? So I decided to help some friends out, and I borrowed another friend's truck, went to their house, and because of some plumbing issues they had in their basement, I loaded up the back of this truck with old soil and rocks, and my job was to dump it somewhere. So in my research, I found out that you can actually take this into the cavern, and there's different locations. You have to pay them money, of course, but uh, you can take that old soil, and you can actually dump it in the caverns. That's one of the Uh, dump sites here in Louisville. So I'm actually really excited. I'm pulling up. I'm going in to to unload all of this. But my excitement began to dwindle as 
I realized that I'm not dumping this stuff toward the entrance where there's people, but in fact, you drive into the cavern and you keep driving into the cavern where it's very dark and it's very lonely. And so here I am in the middle of this cavern. It's dark, it's lonely, and I have to begin unloading all of this with my tiny little shovel. Um, Now, I have to be honest with you. It wasn't completely dark back there. They actually had a light on, but I was really scared if I'm being honest, right? Um, because, um, because let's make a distinction really quick. There is unfamiliar darkness and there's familiar darkness, right? Familiar darkness is the mom making her way through the house to check on a child, right? There's little seeps of light here or there. You're familiar with the house. But that's not the case when you're in the middle of a cavern that you don't know how you got back to this location. Um, and so I was really nervous that this light was going to go out, okay? So nervous that... Um, that another gentleman pulled up to unload his vehicle, and I actually, thankfully, had a $20 bill on me, and I paid him to help me unload my vehicle so that I no longer had to be in this cavern by myself, right? So um, everything went well. I lived. Uh, I didn't get attacked by whatever creatures live in the cavern. Uh, But I share that with you um, just to say this. Um, Unfamiliar darkness really does have a way of of bringing desperation, right? And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but it's amazing how quickly you'll start finding $20 bills here or there to give them to to get help, right? Um, So so today, uh, I want to talk about work and vocation, but in order to do that, we really need to understand that in a lot of ways, um, what's true of your workplace uh, is, is that it's an unfamiliar, dark place, right? So we believe the scriptures, and the scriptures teach us about the reality of sin. And if sin is real, and sin really does exist, and sin has corrupted mankind, and it's corrupted the world, then what's true about the place that you work is that it's a dark place. And, and what's also true is that it desperately longs for some form of light to be present. Um, so let's apply this to the workplace. If I said, how many of you work with someone who is sinful and needs Jesus? I think all hands would go up, right? But this doesn't just apply to the workplace. It actually also applies to the home. So my wife has the joy of being able to work from home part-time, but the primary thing she's doing is she's a stay-at-home mom. And what's also true about our home and not just the workplace is that because of sin, there's actually darkness that exists in our home as well. Our son needs his mom to nurture him and care for him, but he also needs parents who are going to speak truth to him because he also has the reality of sin in his life, right? So the reality of darkness exists uh, in our lives, it exists in our workplace, and what your workplace desperately needs is it needs light, okay? So here is the main idea of today's sermon. My work will glorify God when I am different and righteous. My work will glorify God when I'm different and righteous. If you're going to be a faithful gospel presence, then you need to understand what Jesus means when he speaks to his disciples and to this crowd about being salt and light. 
And so we're going to get there in just a moment, and we're going to unpack what it means to be salt and light. Uh, But before we do that, I think it's really helpful for me just to give you context as to the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to take a microscope, and we're going to focus in on verses 13 through 16. But before we do that, I think it's helpful to step back and to say, what's the big picture of chapter 5 through chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Um, and, And let me say this. This is a side note. Praise the Lord for men who are really smart and who write books so that people like me, when they're writing, writing sermons, can, can use those books. So a guy uh, that I want to uh, honor, who I don't know, actually, but I want to honor him anyways, is a guy named Charles Quarles, and he wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount that was really, really helpful in, in the study of this. And so um, thank you, Lord, for making men smart enough to write these books to help us. So let me, let me read a few notes so that we have the context of the big picture Sermon on the Mount, okay? So Jesus has been hard at work. He's been ministering to large crowds. He's been ministering with his hands through, through healing, but he's also been ministering through teaching and preaching in the synagogues. And as we come to Matthew 5, he goes up onto the mountain, uh, and, and primarily he's speaking to his disciples. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he, it's, it appears that he's speaking to his disciples, but what's also true is, is we assume that as he's teaching his disciples that actually um, large, a larger crowd starts to gather around because if you go to the last verse in chapter 7, you'll see that um, the crowd, it says that the crowds were astonished. Okay, so primarily speaking to disciples, large crowds are starting to gather around. This is Jesus' life right now. His ministry, uh, he couldn't get alone. He couldn't break away very often with small groups because people are like, going crazy after this guy, right? So um, so that's the audience, but what's, what's the main theme? The main theme running throughout the Sermon on the Mount is this. It's that righteousness is not merely outward, but, but righteousness is something that affects us inwardly. In other words, to be right with God and to glorify Him is to have a changed heart and to not merely follow the rules and the laws. Uh, and this is why Jesus and the religious leaders uh, constantly were in conflict with each other, right? Um, they were the greatest example of how to outwardly be righteous, but he's constantly calling them out because Jesus is concerned with inward heart change. Uh, and so the Sermon on the Mount is specifically addressing this um, as he is teaching them, um, I didn't have this in my notes, but I'll just say this really quick. I think the Sermon on the Mount also is intended to make us think of Moses. So Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the law of God. And in the same way, Jesus is is the the better Moses, right? He's the better prophet. Um, And so he is going up on the mountain to give them this new covenant. So uh, I think that's really helpful imagery to have. And so listen to this, and then we're going to dig in. The Sermon on the Mount addresses this inward righteousness. It uh, was not, this is really important, the Sermon on the Mount was not preached to a group of unbelievers. There's probably unbelievers listening, but the Sermon on the Mount's not preached to unbelievers and calling them to repentance, but instead it's preached to a group of Christ followers, and it's describing to them the expression and the evidence of true repentance. So here, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're seeing this is what true repentance will look like in your life. So specifically, we're going to dial in just to the passage of salt and light. Okay, so main idea, God will be glorified in your work when we are different and when you are righteous. 
Number one, workers, workers that are different. Workers that are different. If we are going to reach lost people in our places of employment, and we're going to affect the darkness that exists there, then we must first be different. And in order to understand what it means to be different, we need to understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being salt of the earth, okay? Now, there's actually a lot of disagreement among scholars as to what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being salt. Um, most often what scholars will do is they'll say, well, he's just generally talking about salt. He's not talking about a specific function of salt. He's actually just talking about it generally, how it's really important to all these different facets of life. But I actually don't find that very helpful. And I don't think that, I do think that Jesus probably had specific functions in mind when he talked about salt, okay? So those two functions that clearly stick out to me in this passage, the first one is taste. So if you look at verse 13, he says, if salt has lost its taste, right? So to me, it implies that um, one function of salt is that it's important to our taste buds, right? Second is this idea of purifying, and it's not as explicit, um, but salt has a way of purifying. And so if you were to go back in the Old Testament and you were to do a study on the word salt, um, what you would find is that more often than not, when salt is talked about, it's talked about in, um, in terms of this idea of purification, okay? And so, um, so where does this idea come from? I want to make sure I can clearly articulate that to you. So it's, it's there in the Old Testament, and I think Jesus has that in mind as he's reflecting on salt. But also when he talks about salt at other times, so later if you want to go look at Mark 9.49, he's going to mention salt. And once again, it's in terms of the idea of purification. Um, but then if you back up again, and what's our context of the Sermon on the Mount? It's this idea of righteousness and purity, right? This inward purity. So, so salt not only carries with it the implications of taste, but I think it also carries with it the idea of purification of righteousness. Um, so, so we understand that salt has different functions. Here I'm, I'm articulating two different functions that I think Jesus has in mind. Uh, but the question is this, what is the implication for us and why am I saying that, why am I talking about the idea of just being different, workers that are different? Well, if you, if you boil down what salt does um, to a really simple idea, I think it is that salt is different, right? So in regards to taste, in regards to taste, you don't get a plate of broccoli and put broccoli on the plate of broccoli to make the broccoli taste different, right? If you have a plate of broccoli, what do you do? You grab salt and you put salt on the broccoli. So I know that's really simple, but uh, salt is different than whatever it's applied to, and, and that's, that's actually the effectiveness of salt. Salt is effective when it's different than what it's applied to in regards to taste. So in regards to taste, it actually has the ability to dial down bitterness. It has the ability to balance other types of food. And, and in my research, it actually has the ability to bring out certain aromas in other foods. So if you love cooking, uh, you understand that salt's really, really significant, right? So salt is effective because it's different than what it's applied to. But also, but it's also true in the purification sense, right? So um, a lot of times in the sacrificial system with animals and with, um, um, sorry, 
with animals and incense offerings, um, the salt was applied. And so, yeah, what I'm, what I'm just trying to drive home here is the idea that salt is different than what it's applied to, and that's what makes it effective, right? And so when we think about salt, we need to think about effectiveness, and we need to think about the fact that what makes it, what makes it so good is that it's different than what it's applied to. So what I'm saying is that one of the ways you glorify God in your work is, is by being different, right? By being different than the people around you. What does it mean to be different? Uh, what, does it, what does it look like for you to be different in your workplace? And here's where we need to be careful, right? Because uh, the Pharisees were different, weren't they? They were, they were different than everyone else in society. In fact, they took great pride in the fact that they were different. So we have to be careful that our difference in the workplace is not just an outward difference, but we also need to be concerned about having an inward changed heart. Are, are our hearts pure? Are our hearts holy? And is that, is that inward change outwardly working itself out to affect people around us? Um, and, and so here's a question for you. How is it that your difference in your workplace or your saltiness in your workplace, how is it that it's going to draw people to Christ? And, and here's, here's, my, here's my main application to you and to myself, is the, the difference when you're different at your work uh, it should draw people to Christ through curiosity. So it should draw people to Christ through curiosity. Do people see you in your workplace and think of you as different, and does it make them curious as to why you're different? Perhaps it has to do with integrity. Perhaps it has to do with showing up to work on time, right? Perhaps it has to do with the way that you respond when your boss yells at you. I, I think of an example in our own life. Uh, the Lord has blessed Renee and I with a friendship, uh, and I'm not going to say his name, but this friend, he, uh, he comes from a Muslim background. He's a refugee who's moved here, and he actually claims to be an atheist. So for three years, right when Renee and I started dating, this guy came into our life. We've been spending time with him. And what's happened over the last three years is he's met a lot of our friends, a lot of our Christian friends, and there's not been a single time, a single time where he has met one of our Christian friends, and afterwards he doesn't say to Renee and I, there's something different about them. There's, there's something really kind and sweet and different about them every time this happens, to the point where what's happened is he has moved from being an atheist to being one of those atheists who says, well, I think that there actually might be something to this Jesus guy. He hasn't believed yet. He still has a lot of questions and a lot of barriers to overcome. But I think even just the presence of our Christian friends in, in this guy's life has actually moved him from being an atheist to raising these questions of, well, maybe Jesus actually is real because there's something going on here. So question for you, in your workplace, are you different in a way that makes people curious as to what's going on in your life? But it's not enough to just be different in your workplace, okay? So number two we need to talk about workers that are righteous. How do we be workers that are righteous? If you're going to reach people in your place of employment, you're going to need to also be righteous. And in order to understand righteousness, we need to look at the word light. So Jesus talks about 
salt, but he also talks about light. And once again, light could have a lot of different meanings here. So if you go back into the Old Testament, here's just a list of a few things that light often symbolized. It symbolized revelation, instruction, the law, hope, joy, righteousness, salvation, and often even uh, the radiance of divine presence. So So light is used a lot in the Old Testament to mean a lot of different things. Specifically, though, if you look at the book of Isaiah, if you look at the book of Isaiah, um, he uses the word light in reference to the future Messiah, and he uses it in reference to the future, the future Messiah's people and their presence among the nations, okay? And so if you take Isaiah and then you come over to Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, we actually read here that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So Jesus is this promised light amidst darkness and gloom. In the midst of this darkness and gloom, he is this light that brings hope, uh, joy, deliverance, salvation. Um, However, as I was reflecting on what does it mean for us to be the light of the world, my, my attention went to John chapter 8, and that's why I requested that John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30 be read earlier. And, and how does that passage start out? It starts out, and Jesus says, what? He says, you are, no, he says, I am the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world. And so I think there's some significance here. If Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world, but in another place he's saying, I am the light of the world, we need to understand that passage as well. Now, I promise you that We're not going to unpack that verse by verse, and we'll go through it really quickly. Um, But I do think it's really significant, so so stick with me as we quickly talk about John chapter 8. So um, I was really helped by a sermon here by John Piper on this passage. I'd encourage you to check it out uh, to really understand what Jesus is talking about here. But um, here's, here's what it appears is happening. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. And then they accuse him of bearing, um, they accuse him basically of being a liar. And, and in order to understand what they mean by that, you'd have to go back earlier into the book of John. And Jesus says, if I bear testimony about myself, then my, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is false. And so the Pharisees, he says, I'm the light of the world. And they think, man, we got you. Got you. You did it. You bore witness about yourself, right? Um, but, but what, we, what it appears to happen is that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and then he goes on this detour to defend himself. That's what it appears is happening, because he doesn't talk about it again. But in this sermon that I listened to by Piper, I was helped by, he is saying that he thinks that how Jesus answers the question of, or the, the accusation, is actually a way that we can understand what it means to be the light of the world, okay? And so what happens is the way that Jesus, quote-unquote, defends himself even though he doesn't need to defend himself, is he says over seven times he refers to the oneness that exists between himself and the Father, okay? So so multiple times, over seven times, he refers to this oneness that exists between them. And if we're going to understand what it means to be the light of the world, we need to understand this oneness that exists between the Father and the Son. So so listen to this. Jesus... um, Forgive me. Give me a second here. 
So, so Jesus, in his oneness with the Father, he, he uh, comes from the Father. So think about the Father and Jesus. He comes from the Father. He speaks on behalf of the Father, right? Um, in, in essence, what Jesus is, he's, he's God incarnate, right? And at different times throughout the book of John, he says, if you, if you knew me, then you would know my Father. Or if you knew my Father, then you would know that I am from him, right? And so there's this oneness that exists between them. And so what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world is it means that he is one with the Father, he's from the Father, and that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. Okay? So this is this is carries with it this idea of being the light of the world. Now come back really quick to Matthew. And so Jesus is telling us that we are the light of the world, and what does that mean for us? What does it mean to be the light of the world? Well, it means that if if Jesus is the reflection and the image of the Father to us, then it means that we are and should be the reflection and the image of Christ to those around us. You see the connection here? So, so to be the light of the world is to be a reflection of who Christ is. It's to reflect the characteristics of Christ. It's to speak the words of Christ. It is to be one with Him, right? And so... A question is, if, if we are light, if we have this righteousness that Christ has given to us through his death and resurrection, how, how is it that this light will draw our coworkers and the people around us to, to Christ? So, so remember earlier we said that your saltiness, your difference in the way that you work should create curiosity. And what I would say is that your light, your righteousness what Christ has inwardly done in your heart, it should create conversation. So if, if saltiness and difference brings about, um, brings about uh, curiosity, what light should bring about is it should bring about conversation. And, and here's what I mean, is if you just outwardly display righteousness in your workplace, there's actually a tendency or a danger in you being a Pharisee at best, Right? You could be a Pharisee at best. And what I mean by that is you could appear to everyone as righteous and different and good, and that's great because that should raise questions. But if it stops there, then you're just doing what the Pharisees did. And so in order to be light in your workplace, in order to communicate righteousness, I think you actually have to talk about righteousness. So as this curiosity is raised about you in the workplace to be faithful to be a faithful light in your workplace or to be a faithful light among your children, you actually have to talk about how this righteousness came into your heart. And you have to talk about the fact that it's Christ who has done it. It's Christ who has died on your behalf, who lived a perfect life, who rose from the dead, and who has inwardly changed you because you've put your faith in him. And so the way that you have impact as a light is you talk about this righteousness that's taken place. So we must preach to our coworkers. We must be uh, we must be different, and we must be righteous in the way that we communicate with them. So here, here's a question for you: What happens when you're different? What happens when you're righteous in your workplace? And if we look at verse 16, when we look at verse 16. It says this: It says, "Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father." who is in heaven. And so what does it mean? What does it mean that others around you 
will glorify God. Well, actually, I think it's helpful to under, in order to understand this to actually go back to verse 11 really quick. So in verse 11, it's the, it's the end of the Beatitudes. It's the end of the Beatitudes. And listen to verse 11. It says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it's actually important for us to know that if you live a righteous life, if you talk about the righteousness that's taken place in you, if you're different, um, not everyone is going to respond by glorifying the Father. Some are going to respond by rejecting you. They're going to reject you. They're going to reject your message. And ultimately, they're going to reject the Father. They're going to reject Christ, right? I think if I asked for stories, we probably would have stories about this, right? Some people will reject you. So some will reject, but the opposite of that is seen in verse 16. Some are going to respond opposite by um, by giving glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what does it mean to glorify God? Well, it means not to reject him, uh, and I think it means to submit to him, right? So your other people around you will, will submit to God the Father. They'll submit to Christ. You submitted to Christ and have inwardly been changed. They will submit to Christ and be inwardly changed. Uh, and so there will be this submission, this worship, this acknowledgement of him. If you follow the line of thought with Matthew, and if you'll remember back to the sermon you heard last week from Trevor, right? what, what ultimately is going to happen is uh, your coworkers are going to become disciples. That is, they're going to become followers of Jesus. They're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're going to observe and obey Jesus' commandments, right? It's going to be the fulfillment of the Great Commission in your workplace, when you are faithful to be salt and light. And, if, and if, you, if you look back and you want to know what happens when you're a light in your workplace, if you look back at John 8, the first verse we read, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the last verse we read, it says that, it says that many believed in him. Christ came to be the light of the world so that man would believe in him. And my my encouragement is that when we go into our workplace and we are salt and light, people will believe in him. People will be saved. Um, okay, so, so there it is. That's the passage that we've unpacked. Uh, you will glorify God in your work when you are different and when you are righteous. Cool? Here's the problem, though. The problem is that most of you are going to struggle to do that. You're going to wake up tomorrow and before you even get to work, uh, something's going to happen. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to buy into one, if not two, different lies about your work. And so before you even get to work, you're going to struggle to be light and salt at work because you're going to buy into two different lies about work or your vocation, and they are going to hinder you from being faithful in the workplace. So, Here's what needs to happen. We need to talk about those two lies really quick, and we need to repent of them, and we need to believe truth. And when you do that, you actually can be faithful in your workplace. So here's lie number one. Lie number one is that work is not good. Work is not good. Because work requires effort, and at times work is hard, or laborious, I think we often equate work to a Genesis 3 world, 
right? So if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they disobey God. They uh, choose not to listen to what he had said not to do. And ever since then, everything's been really messed up. Mankind's, mankind is sinful, the world is sinful, and everything's broken. And I think, and, and, and it is helpful to say this, work did change in Genesis 3, right? So if you go back to Genesis 3, and after they disobey, if you read the curses, almost all the curses given to Adam are in regards to how work is going to be more difficult, it's going to come through sweat, it's not going to be easy, right? So work does change uh, in light of Genesis 3 and the fall, but we need to understand this. God created you to work. And so, so uh, if you look at Genesis, and you don't have to turn here, but Genesis 1.26, um, we read that God created man in his image and after his likeness. So this is where we get the idea of a mago day created in the image of God. But what immediately follows that, follows that, that verse is it says that we are to take dominion of the world. It carries this idea of, of work with it. And then if you go over to Genesis chapter 2, God actually, it says that he put man in the garden to work it and keep it. And so, listen, the truth that you need to believe and the lie that you need to stop believing is you need to believe that, that God created you to work. And the second truth in, in regards to this is that Christ, Christ is our example for work or of work. So we know that the God-man, when he was on the earth, he actually did work, right? He worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. And if God, if God incarnate works, then we have to see that that's actually a fulfillment of the creative plan. It's not a Genesis 3 thing. Uh, more than that, though, more than that, though, is that Christ not only worked with his hands, he also worked with his life, right? We talk about the work of Christ Christ worked on our behalf by living a perfect life, by dying, by rising from the dead, by ascending to the right hand of the Father. So, so when you're tempted to believe that work is not good, you need to remember that Jesus is our example, that work actually is good. You were created to work. Second lie, and then we're done. Lie number two is that work, work is for me, or work is about me. Work is for me. It's about me. This is perhaps the greatest lie that we believe about work. And, and, and here's, how it's, here's how it plays itself out. It plays itself out in a lot of ways. Uh, I work to make money so that I can buy what I want to buy. I work to get a title so that I can be praised by my friends. I parent my children so that others can be impressed by my Instagram photos. And the problem is, is that you are not going to be salt and light in your workplace or your home if you buy into the lie that work is about you. And so in order to bust up this lie and in order to push away the lie and to believe a truth, uh, the most helpful place for you to go is to go to Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And you don't have to turn there. You're going to know the passage well when I talk about it. But Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And in, in here, uh, Jesus is asked a question. What is the greatest commandment? And this is where we learn, right, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, right? And the second is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. So listen, when you're tempted to believe that work is about you, 
Remember that the greatest commandments are to not love ourselves. And this is the problem, and this is why uh, we think works about us, right? We love ourselves. I love my money so that I can do what I want to do. I love, uh, I love my, my back getting padded. Hey, good job. Good job, good job, right? And I love uh, my Instagram photos to show that my family's picture perfect, right? And so uh, in order to not believe this lie, we need to believe the truth that God intends for you to love him first and foremost. This is where you could go to Colossians 3.23, as to, and it says to work unto the Lord and not unto man. So first and foremost, I want to glorify God with my work. But second, I want to follow the example of Jesus, right? Uh, in, in my, at my company, our purpose statement is cleaning that serves and surprises. And when we talk about service, we often go to the example of Jesus. Uh, and Jesus humbled himself, right? He, he washes his disciples' feet. We know that Jesus came not to be served, but to what? He came to serve, right? And so we look to Jesus as an example of when I'm at work, I'm serving other people. And at Clean Care, the way we talk about that is, hey, when you're here, you're serving your family by providing for them. When you're here, you're serving the company and me, even as the owner of the company, by honoring the reputation and what we're doing. You're serving your coworkers by being patient with them, by being kind to them. So when you show up late to work, it's actually not honoring to your teammates, right? You're delaying them and the way you serve them is by being on time. You're serving, your, you're serving these customers. So we clean 12 churches. Um, combined between those 12 churches, probably 10, over 10,000 people are going to those churches on a Sunday. So when you clean there throughout the week, you're serving over 10,000 people who go to these churches. Uh, and so do you have that mindset when you go to work? Do you work for yourself or do you see your work as a service to God and as a service to other people. And so in conclusion, I'll just say this. Brothers and sisters, you are the salt and light of your workplace. So stop believing that work is not good. Stop believing that work is for you. You, you work in a place of unfamiliar darkness. It's not familiar darkness. Don't take it lightly. It's unfamiliar darkness. So be different. Be righteous and you will glorify God as others around you turn to him to glorify him because of, of who you are.